Well, good morning again. You know, it's uh, become quite a famous TED Talk uh, that was, was done a, a while back now, but I know that it's been look, listened to quite a bit. This idea of, by Amy Cuddy of, uh, from the Harvard School of Business, as a social psychologist, she preaches this, this maxim, fake it till you make it. What do you think about that? You know, there's, there's some perhaps positive ways to think about it. I'm sure you've probably heard folks speak to that issue. Uh, some see it as a variation of positive thinking, you know, based on the idea of the law of attraction. It's the belief that positive or negative thoughts uh, bring about positive or negative expressions. Some will take this to the idea of the looking glass self. In psychology, if you know that phrase, it means that, you know, we typically act out the way people think of us. And so there's the fake it till you make it, that is, fake it out, fake people out, and we might actually start acting like they think that we are, and on it goes. Sometimes you could see it as, you know, forcibly changing your behavior, even though it's hard to do so with the goal that that behavior might become more and more natural. So my intent is not really to comment on all of this, per se, but I want to ask the question, um, does fake it till you make it, is that a, a good maxim or a good cliche for spirituality, for Christian spirituality especially? Well, let me just tell you, a noted theologian and pastor, Jesus Christ, and his extensive knowledge of human identity and behavior in his famous TED Talk that we now know as the Sermon on the Mount, well, he says it this way, beware, beware, keep alert. In other words, he seems to be very concerned about the fake it or you make it, this idea of practicing our righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Yes, we may have a reward, he will say, but it's not the reward you're looking for. And so what do you think? What do we think of this idea of a pretender righteousness? And is that something that the church struggles with? Well, I think we're going to find that there is a scathing uh, analysis of the pretender righteousness in our passage today. I, I suspect that none of us will come out of this sermon without a conviction of sin. And it's true that the church often has been and has fallen prey to hypocrisy. But I hope that by the end of the sermon as well, you will see that hypocrisy might not be what you thought it was. Uh, I think most of us think of hypocrisy as someone who pretends to be holy outwardly but is not really holy. There's an element of truth to that. In other words, the kind of holier-than-thou Christian who's the hypocrite. But here, it has much more to do with the audience that we, we live before. Who is it that we live for and whose opinion of us is important? You'll get into that through this passage, but first, let's begin in prayer. So, Father, we thank you for the privilege to hear you speak to us. What an amazing privilege it is. There is no other word. There is no other narrative. There's no other analysis or perspective that we could possibly hope for more than that you seated in the heavens, our creator, the, the decreer of all things, the one who knows us and the nature of life itself better than anyone that could possibly know us, 
to think for a moment, Lord, that you have spoken to us now, that you want to speak into our hearts. But, Lord, we know we need your spirit. We could resist this. We could rationalize this. We could pretend we're hearing. Lord, break into the rooms of our heart now. You know where we're seated. You know what our circumstances are. You know the noise. Break in. Break in with your power. Speak to us, we pray, as we desperately need to hear your word about this subject today. In Christ's name, amen. Well, if you look at the passage briefly, you'll see that it's sort of outlined. uh, You could outline it in two parts. Part one is just hypocrisy defined. And then part two is hypocrisy three times illustrated. It's important to put it in context, though, that you remember the previous sermon out of Matthew a couple of weeks ago was really focused on this idea that Christ came not to annul the law or abolish the law, but he came to fulfill it. And we discovered that, that over and over again, we were, we were, it was given to us that, that when he means the law, he means every jot and tittle. He means every small and great aspect of it. But more than that, we begin to discern as through redemptive history that the law is more than just an outward behavior, but an inward behavior. It's or an inward attitude or an inward motivation. It's it's those card it's all related to that cardinal sin of rejecting God that then produces all manifestations of law breaking, uh, if you will. And so so we want to keep in mind that part of what Christ is doing here is exasperating those who would rely on themselves, their own righteousness, in order to satisfy the contract that God made with us at creation. It's been that temptation, rather than to rely on the wisdom and the power of God, that has always gotten us in trouble. When we take it upon ourselves uh, to satisfy our contract and our own strength and wisdom particularly, you know, the temptation, you know, of course, was, you know, God doesn't know what he's talking about. This fruit is what you need. Listen to yourself rather than the revelation base. And we have a whole history in enlightenment, et cetera, where, where we are either a revelation-based people or we start with ourselves and our own intuitions. I am that I am, and therefore from there I derive my ethical system and also our power. And to be sure, Humans made in the image of God are quite amazing people, and we are quite ingenious and and can do some amazing things. But at the end of the day, whatever reward we may receive in a temporary and an immediate aspect, life will prove that it's all for naught. For it all comes out, and you know, the rooster comes back to roost, if it will, that ultimately rebellion against God reaps a reward of rebellion curse. That's the spirit, you see, that then introduces this passage about hypocrisy because Christ now continues to go deep and say, now hold it, let's let's go a little deeper here. Why? What's going on when we break the law? What is happening here? And it's this word, hypocrisy. He tells us not to practice your righteousness, this word beginning in righteousness. What does he mean by righteousness? Well, here, it's interesting. You can think of righteousness in moral terms, you know, in terms of just thou shalt not kill or thou shalt not steal and all those sorts of things. You also can think of righteousness in ceremonial or might we even say uh, sacred terms. You know, the first five commandments, if you will, relate more to that, the way we relate to God. What's interesting is that 
in the previous passage, to illustrate, he focused mostly on the last five commandments, the ethical or moral code. Today, he's going to focus much more on this relationship to God, this ceremonial or, or sacred relationship that is invoked in the first five commandments. Do not practice your righteousness here, as we'll see in the illustrations, are clearly related to this issue of, um, of, of the ceremonial. So then we go to this next aspect. And what we see here specifically is this hypocrisy defined. Why does he say do not do your righteousness here? Before people, you see that phrase? Before people, so that you are noticed by them. Now this is important. Do not practice your righteousness before people, for the sake of people, for their opinion of you people, so that you are noticed by them. He then calls them hypocrites. This is a word that gets us to our title and our very uh, essence of what the sermon gets at. This word is from a classic Greek use of the word that would be used in their day for an actor, someone who acts things out. What you see is not the real thing. The actor is pretending. Again, it comes from a stage context of a theater, which was very prominent even in that day. Or one who wears a mask, is the way some people would translate it, where they would, there would be a mask involved in the theater. The mask wearer would be called this word, this Greek word. You see, it is not necessarily the fact that they sin that makes them the hypocrite. What's the problem here is the fact that they don't acknowledge it, that they pretend to be something that they're not. They don't admit that their lives contradict what they say. They are inauthentic and imposters. Fake it till you make it. And there's that pesky little word, fake. That is not a pretty word, is it? And to be sure, an honest bystander of Christianity around the world, they have not missed sometimes the fakeness of the church and of Christianity. But I hope as well that those who may be hearing, which would be so quick to judge the church, might also consider how this speaks to all of us, honestly. That we all have a tendency to fake it. Particularly here, it, you're going to discover that the fakeness of the church is not typically, um, it's, it's not the church that's sinning. It's not the church that's screwed up. It's not the church that's broken and who acknowledges that brokenness, it's the church who's broken and who struggles with sin even today that doesn't acknowledge their sin. It's the unrepentant church, you could say, but it's also the unrepentant sinner, one who, who lives the world as if there's a God that pretends there is no God in their profession, you could say, who takes advantage of God and all of his resources but does it acknowledge God as creator and as Lord over all things? And so you see here, we have this, this issue of hypocrisy, of fakeness related to being an actor on the stage of life, to pretend. Notice this is a huge theme for Jesus. Combating hypocrisy was a passion, in fact, for Christ. In chapter 23, you'll say it this way. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. 
That is, they have a position of authority as carried down through the architectural design of the church by Moses. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do. In other words, they teach the right things. But don't do they do. Don't practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. That's the key point. For people to see. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. That is to say, they do some outward practices, but in a religious context of, of say, Christendom or Judaism, in the context, there's a reward. There's an immediate reward for, for being righteous. This is more and more not going to be the experience of Christians living in a post-Christendom era, I, I must say. But, and then that's one of the things I've loved about being in New England, quite frankly, is, you know, if you go to church, there's just not any cultural, social rewards for that. In fact, most people scoff and say, man, why would you spend your time that way after a hard day's work? It's kind of, that's kind of a cool thing, you know, up here, is that, that people who come to church or people who begin to practice some of these more questionable ethical standards regarding marriage or whatever, uh, there won't be much of a reward, and therefore it sort of tests the spirit. It tests the heart. Why would we do it then? Maybe, though, still we do it just to be part of the club. We do it for others to admire us, those others that we admire ourselves maybe. It could go on and on, but Christ describes that as a greedy motive. You see what's happening here. You can do something right for the wrong reason, and it's no longer love. It's selfishness. And at the root of the law is love, not selfishness. This really hits home. We could be working our bones off for the church, but if it's done as a man-pleasing, woman-pleasing kind of thing, if it's done in a manner that's really selfish, well, the point we're going to hear here is that God knows the heart. There is no covenant reward for selfishness. Woe to you teachers, he'll say it again, of the law and the Pharisees. You hypocrites, you were like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. Think about the image of this. Outwardly doing righteousness, things that... Even your Christian friends or the church would acknowledge as righteous. Let's start with me. I'm preaching right now. Wow. Well, God doesn't say wow. God knows me in my heart. That's, that's the only audience that's going to matter as it turns out. It's an incredible temptation. I hope that we're really thinking a lot about this right now how we could do so many things. And it's, we're going to see that the, the admonition will not be to stop doing good things, but it's really to search. And it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard. We're going to get back to that in a minute, but it's going to be hard to search ourselves. It's really going to be hard to go deep and say, really, why and what am I doing? And how does, how does the audience shape the way then I will do what I do? He'll get into that. So what is hypocrisy? By definition, it's a pretender. It's someone who's pretending, but be careful. 
It's not he's pretending or she's pretending to be holy necessarily. That's not the emphasis. Three times he's going to repeat it. The emphasis is we're pretending to serve God when in reality we're serving man or woman. That's the laser-sharp sword of Christ coming into our hearts. That's what a hypocrite is. It's pretending to serve God when in reality we're serving other people. Notice how this gets spoken of by the prophets. In chapter, uh, we read it in, in Isaiah 29, the peoples honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Saying right things, but saying them for some immediate gratification that comes by saying them among the right people. John 5, how can you believe when you accept glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the throne who alone is God? Let me read that again. How can you believe when you accept glory, applause, affirmation from one another, but do not seek the applause that comes from heaven who alone is God? I, I just keep remembering, and I think I've, I know I've said it before, but there is the true story of, of, of a musician who played a recital and and um, this musician, you know, had all of his family there and everyone there. And all he could think about was, you know, will they give me a standing ovation? Will I get that standing ovation? Wanting it, hungering for it. But then, at the end of his recital, everyone in the room stood except for one person. And it was his mentor. And it was devastating. You know, that's a sad story, but it's a very illustrative story. We don't know the inside. I don't know the inside of that situation. Hopefully the mentor's really a nice guy. I don't know. But perhaps the mentor had a much higher vision for this person's music, thought that this person could have done something different. I don't know. But the point is clear. You know, who do you perform for? You know, whose affirmation do you want at the end of the day? That's the point. John 12, for they loved human glory more than the glory that comes from God. So who is your real audience is what this word pretender or hypocrite wants to beg of us. In this case, hypocrisy, you see, isn't saying one thing and doing another. That's what we typically think. It's serving one person and not another that we're supposed to serve. God sees the secrets of the heart. And notice the third part about this hypocrisy. Otherwise, you will not have a reward from your Father who is in heaven. Now, each of the three illustrations that he gives following is going to illustrate this perfectly. He'll repeat it three times. They truly, they have received their reward. That is the reward they sought. But it's not the reward that they really want. It's not the reward from that one mentor, Christ. That's the scary thing. We could work so hard in our man-woman pleasing. And we might even be tempted to do it, even if we knew that we were doing it. Even if you sat there and said, yeah, I am, but I don't care. I just like it so much. 
for people to like me, for people to love me, to, to, to congratulate me on a good sermon, for it to be a popular sermon, and I'm just speaking to my own life, to pray with great and holy words. They would expect that from their pastor. On it goes, an elder, a deacon, anyone. We can do these things, and we can do them for the applause of our church, of our people, whoever that is, of our parents. This is wanting to get at the heart. Do you love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Do you see how exasperating this is becoming? I mean, if the first part wasn't, you know, the jot and tittle part of the law, that every jot and tittle is going to be kept in contract for you to attain the righteous reward of heaven, then here... It gets to the very heart, not just the outward moral activities, but hypocrisy comes to why we do what we do, but not just why. The why will always determine how we do it. If I'm here to glorify God, for instance, in a sermon, I'm going to be getting you to his word, his writings, his word, his speech, his rhetoric. I want to glorify that. If I'm wanting to glorify humanity and you and get into your sympathies, I'm going to appeal to your idle rhetoric. I'll quote your idle writers. I will do all. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to do that here and there, but you see how that would be different just by virtue of who am I preaching to and for? You could say the same thing of prayer. You could say the thing of almsgiving. You could say the same thing about all these and, and, and things that are talked about here, fasting and giving to the poor. He, he gets right at it, doesn't he, with these three illustrations? Who are you serving? That's the question. And so let's look at these illustrations briefly. Indeed, the first one we find here is, is this example of, of uh, faking it till you make it as, a, as applied to the example of, of the specific here of the almsgiving. Giving is always a kind of um, tricky thing, isn't it? There's this idea that we want our left hand not to know what our right hand is doing. In other words, don't do it for an alternative motive. Almsgiving, when you practice mercy giving, you could say, from the words mercy and giving is this word alms, a specific gift that was, that was instituted for the temple for the sake of the poor, almsgiving. I mean, you could not think of anything more righteous, you could say, that I would give to help the poor. And yet Jesus is quick to see through the hypocrisy. Where we do so, we find little tricky ways to make sure people know that we love the poor, that we care for the poor, that we're the prophet for the poor, that we are all about social justice for the poor. Just subtly and more subtly and more subtly, we begin less and less subtly to sound a trumpet, to call attention to it, in other words. Think about that. Something that's very big right now, I know, in this COVID-19 environment. And as it should be, we should be cared for the homeless and we should be caring for those who are destitute and, and, and at home and can't get out and fearful. And there should be a lot of almsgiving, both actually with the money, but also with the, with the hands and the time and all of this goes on. But, but so subtly, are we really thinking seriously about, am I doing this? And is God my audience? Do I do it for him and for his glory? And how would that change, do you think, the way we do it? How would we and how would we direct the credit? How would we direct the attention? Even how would we do it? There's some kind of mercy giving that can be extremely 
destructive to people. Oh, but it gets a lot of accolades. We talk a lot about that. In, in the scripture, giving is an empowering event for someone. It should never be an enabling event. Something that enables a person to remain in a lower state of life, in a lower state of self-esteem and identity than when they met you. There is a kind of giving that, that takes you, brings you to yourself and the giver, but does not connect you to the community that this person will need long-term in order to really flourish. You know, I think of Brian Kivert in his book, you know, When Helping Hurts, and he tells the story of a woman who needed an antibiotic, and he had it in his pocket, the money to take it right now. And in his compassion, he just pulls it out, and he says, here, Here's your antibiotic. Uh, we went and bought it. Here's your antibiotic. But then later he realized that he had totally lost the great opportunity of everything his ministry has been about. For what this woman most needed, who was isolated in her hut, was she needed to be reconnected to the village and to the community. The village and the community should have been brought into the almsgiving. And no, it would not have been so immediately gratifying to Brian. But it would have been holistic and the way in which this woman would be brought back into relationships, the very context of which the real problems for why she needed that, why she was sick, all of those things were symptoms of how she had been isolated from a world of accountability and love and care, and he had just circumvented all. That's the point I want to make. Jesus is not here just being a killjoy and, ah, oh, you didn't do it for the right reason. Because the right reason is also going to change the terms of the game. When I'm preaching for God, I can just tell you it's a different sermon than when I'm preaching for you to like what I said. When I give for God, it's a different way of giving a gift than it is when I give it to alleviate my own guilt, which is really a selfish motive gift. That's his point here. Don't under misunderstand it. It's not to be accoladed as a social justice mercy person that we should give. We should give for the good of the person we give to. And most importantly, that being the, the reciprocal command, love your neighbors yourself, out of a command that starts with, but love your God. It must be done, first and foremost, out of the love of God, so that God gets the glory. And God gets the, the fruit that he wants in this person's life that I'm giving to. You see, as you unpack these three circumstances, I won't spend as much time on the other two, you begin to see that there really is a, a, a choreography of sorts about righteousness. Righteousness is meant to make people to flourish and to do so for the sake of the glory of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we practice almsgiving or any of these other two for our own self-glory among men and women, God knows it. And secondly, the fruit of it will not be the love of others, actually. It'll be a cheap love of others, one that might get an immediate accolade, but it won't cause the kingdom fruit of someone's identity being restored to God in the image of God, of someone's empowerment and the confidence in their choices and the way in which they would make those choices and to see the fruit of those choices that would make them to love their lives again. 
You could take this example as he does to prayer. That's, by the way, what he means. Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your gift may be in secret. That is, without the applause and the response of people. Prayer, verse 5 and 6. When you pray, he says, again, the improper prayer is the human becomes the audience of the prayer. You love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners so that they may be seen by people, quote, unquote. You see, it's a common theme again. The proper prayers, the divine audience, go into your room and shut your door to pray to your father in secret. Now, this is not a diatribe against public prayer. It's about the heart and is the public prayer the only prayer we pray. And when we pray it, is your heart and your mind and your focus really on the Father who is in heaven or is it really listening with the ears of your ear, outward ears as the mouth speaks your prayer for how people might be responding to this prayer? I mean, look, this is a public guy talking here. And if I don't come out of this thing totally, totally convicted, then I just don't even have a soul because I probably have more temptations than most to to fall prey to every one of these and certainly indulge in many of them. Thirdly, it's the fasting. When you fast, we'll deal more with fasting later in Matthew 9, so I won't get into what that means and doesn't mean, but the point here is simple. The point here is, again, it's beyond the point of the passage to tell us anything about our obligations as a Christian, but to illustrate the hypocrisy under the Old Covenant, improper fasting is with human audience in mind. Do not look dismal. That's his point. Don't make sure everybody sees it. Oh, look at him. He's fasting. Proper fasting is anoint your head and wash your face. Life should go on. Do your duties. Do you get the point? I hope it's clear. And it's making me uncomfortable that probably should you as well. For the church that's not a hypocritical church, first and foremost, is a church that hypocritically says, I'm not hypocritical. So let me just encourage you to say I'm a hypocrite is probably the most righteous thing you could say right now if, in fact, God is convicting you of the sin of hypocrisy. The ways that we can do things, sometimes subtly, sometimes not so subtly, to draw attention to ourselves for the sake of human accolade. But, of course, there's a deeper problem. Underneath that is we've made people our idols. We've made them our God. We get our sense of a of assurance from them, of being all right. We get our sense of identity from them and being highly esteemed. It gets really gross and weak sounding, but it's true, isn't it? Here's the way John Stott said it. We have to become so conscious of God that we cease to be self-conscious. So the question is, which spectator matters to us more, earthly or heavenly, men or God? The hypocrite performs his rituals in order to be seen by people, their religion is a public spectacle. The true Christian is also aware that he is being watched, but for him, the audience is God. You see, all true righteousness, not fake righteousness, starts with who are we doing it for. It's either for God or for others in a selfish way that they might, of course, give us a reward. Jesus says here, you'll, you'll get that kind of reward. That's why, that's such a little insertion there that I think we need to think about. 
The fact is, it might actually work for a while. That's why it's so dangerous. It might keep my job a little longer. It might keep your job a little longer. It might do this. It might do that. But somehow, we know that we have violated the very nature of who we are when we do that. But remember, who are we? Our glory is always, always, if it's a true glory, our glory is always a derivative glory. We are glorified insofar as we image the glory of God. We are made in his image. That image language means we are not God. We are not the ultimate glory God is. We are glorious to the degree that we radiate the glory of God. And we just cannot forget that God knows the secrets of the heart. He says it over and over throughout the prophets. How do we reconcile then? Be careful not to practice your righteousness before people so that you are noticed by them. With the other side that we'll hear about earlier, that we heard about earlier, let your light shine before people that they may see your good works. You see, there are good works being done in both of these passages, chapter 5 and and here. But the righteousness or the good works is either selfishly given, which will change the nature of those works themselves and their results, or they are love given. And so let's think about this a little bit as we turn now to just wanting to get, get this right. You could say that false religion then serves humans, attempts to please humans, and receives its reward from humans, whereas true religion serves God and attempts to please God and receives its reward from God. This passage wants us to repent of all pretending to serve God when we are really serving humanity. What does it mean? Well, it's not going to mean that external or public actions are unimportant. I mentioned that. The internal is not more important than the external, just less discernible to people. That's the point. The warning that which is indiscernible to people is not less discernible to God. That's the whole point. To not forget that no matter how the immediate circumstances feel externally, God does see the heart. Mm. And it does not mean that we should only act when we are sure that our motives are 100% correct. If we did that, I wouldn't preach a sermon one day of my life. I wouldn't do anything. That would be such a cop-out. That would be false repentance. Oh, I'll wait till I have pure motives. No, what we'll do is we'll get in the pulpits of our lives and we'll do what God tells us to do and we'll do it wrestling all the time, checking with our motives, checking with our hearts. It's going to relate in the way you treat other people while you do it. You're going to be very, very frustrated and cynical if your audience is anyone other than God. You're going to get frustrated. You're going to have a low temper fuse. You're going to, we can talk through all that. What this text then means is that true Christian spirituality begins between ourselves and God, and we act for God, not for people. I think I've said it about 100 times. I'm just trying to drill it in. Here's some tests, for instance, that we've thought about. When you face a major challenge, do you pray to God about it, or do you talk to everyone else about it? Now, there could be a both and, but when we talk to other people about it, we're looking for hopefully godly counsel and guidance. But think about that. Really, where's your go-to when you're challenged? When you perform some act of charity, are you deeply disappointed if no one expresses appreciation for you? May God in his great love for you withhold that appreciation if perhaps to, uh, 
to starve the idol of human pleasing. Do you explain yourself to others before they ask for an explanation? I mean, how important is it for other people to understand you? Think about that. Do you talk about God but not to God? Yep, that, that hits anyone that's a leader in the church. Do you keep your faith private in fear of people in the world? See, that's hypocrisy too. If you're afraid to identify with Christ, that's being the hypocrite. I mean, if it's for God in the first place, then of course that would mean God gets the glory of my life. We speak of him and we testify concerning him. We confess him and we do so all the more public. Not to be seen by humans. That's, that's the nice thing about that one. It's kind of the reversal, isn't it? There's probably not a natural motivation to do it. You have to get over your, your fear of man and woman in order to speak and give testimony. You have to get over your worry about how it might render a consequence in your vocation, in your career, in your whatever it is, your social standing, especially up here. Are you preoccupied with what people think of you or of what God thinks of you? Parents, I want to think about this with you as well. I mean, you can help your children greatly to cultivate Christian habits by asking them not, what will other people think of that? But what does God think of that? Now, I want to caution you here. It's not God the killjoy. I'm assuming when I say that to you, parents, that you're raising them to know that our standing, our righteousness with God is by grace through faith alone, not of ourselves, not of our works, so that now you could ask that question. You could ask the question, not what will other people think, but what does God think? Knowing that hopefully your child has already digested the message that comes through every family worship, through every prayer, through every consultation, that they are more loved by God than they ever humanly could think or dare think could be possible because not of their own works and not their own activities, but because of what Christ has given them through his works and his activities on behalf of them. If they have been programmed and taught over and over about the grace of, the, of, the, of, of our standing with God because of faith in Christ alone, then we can say, without thinking we're putting them under the, the Nazi, you know, you know cops, uh, that, that, hey, what would God think? That's not meant to give them shivers. Oh, I'm going to be punished. That's to think, he's the only one that matters. Because he's the only one that truly loves you more than anyone in the world loves you. You see, perfect love casts out fear. If they have been introduced to the perfect love that is in the gospel of Jesus Christ, now there is no fear to ask the question, what does God think about this? And if they push back and say, oh, come on, dad or mom, that's, oh, come on, you're, that's religious. No, no, that's not being religious. That's just being honest for who that significant other is that you will be most blessed to live for. You can help your children. Do they see you change drastically when guests arrive? Your attitude, concern for human praise regarding the house, children's behavior, on and on it goes. Ouch, ouch, ouch. I know. If your children were to be asked, who is the audience that your parents perform for, what would they say? What really matters to my mom and dad? Would they hear them say, 
well, I know, like everybody, they care what other people think and they struggle with that, but man, it always comes through. They really, they seem over, over and over to go back to our, what matters is God. Can they see you doing that? Can, I, I know this puts us under guilt. I don't mean to in that sense, but how can I read this passage? I just want you to get into my shoes. How can you read this passage and, and say it's just not relevant to us? Because <laughs> we certainly don't want to feel conviction of sin. You can hear my struggle already. So it's all about God. It's really what it comes down to. It's all about God. And we see why fake it till you make it is just so detrimental. It's all about being restored to the image of God as our fundamental identity. And when that happens, our self-esteem starts not with what people think of us. Our self-esteem then what is, is going to derive from what God thinks of us in Christ through the gospel. Our empowerment starts with the power that is gifted to us by the anointing of God's Spirit. We were talking about this earlier, but I can't say it enough. If you look at church history, it's amazing the theme that you'll discover, starting from the Apostle Paul himself. A theme of greater than he who lives in me than he who lives in the world. Or even better, a greater theme of greater is he who works for, through me than what I could do in my own strength. You almost see it all the time. When you read the greats of Christendom past, they had a very low self-esteem. And it was that that brought them to this incredible, earth-shattering conversion of Christ and the power of Christ that lives within them that where they, when they no longer are relying upon themselves, they are now more bold and confident than you could possibly ever be in yourself. That's the crucial aspect of how anyone can do what this passage is asking us to do. I'm reminded of J.B. Phillips, a 40-year-old classic, Your God is Too Small. It's a book that wants to challenge the conventional views about God and encourage us to search for a meaningful redefinition of a higher power that is relevant to our everyday contemporary existence. It's getting God and what we say we believe about God into our lives. And this point particularly, it's very relevant. You see, he explains that the trouble facing many of us today is that we have not found a God big enough for our modern needs. In a world where our experience of life has grown in myriad directions and our mental horizons all are expanded to the point of bewilderment by world events as we see right now and scientific discoveries we look at this incredibly big world, we would say, these, and these ideas of God that we learn in maybe Sunday school here or there just don't seem to compare. They become static and uninspirational, this meek and mild God. This inspirational work tackles tough topics and inspires readers to reevaluate and to reconsider what kind of God do I really believe in? Let me read a quote from J.B. Phillips about this. He says, many men and women today are living often with inner dissatisfaction without any faith in God at all. This is because they have not found with their adult minds a God big enough. And he goes on to say, here being a snippet of what he, he says about that. He's, he talks about how it is that there, he, he titles all these different kind of gods that we may have in our head. Maybe you could relate to some of these. He talks about the resident policeman God, the grand old man God, the meek and mild God, God in a box God, 
pale Galilean God and managing director God, to name just a few. You could quickly insert what kind of God we would be thinking about in our head. We ought to think about that today. What kind of God is in your mind? Well, he wants, especially relating this point of empowerment, to, to tackle this idea of the gentle Jesus, meek and mild God. And here's his quote. Why mild, he says. Of all the epithets that could be applied to Christ, this seems one of the least appropriate. For what does mild as applied to a person conjure up to our minds? Surely a picture of someone who wouldn't say boo to the proverbial goose, someone who would let sleeping dogs lie and avoid trouble, whoever, whenever possible, someone of a placid temperament who is almost a stranger to the passions of a red-blooded humanity, someone who is a bit of a non-entity, both uninspired and uninspiring. He goes on to, to, to challenge this unmild aspect. And the first thing he says is he challenged and exposed talking about Christ and why he's not mild. He challenged and exposed the hypocrisies of the religious. He walked unscathed through a murderous crowd. He was regarded by the authorities as a public danger. He could be moved to violent anger. He deliberately walked towards the cruel cross. And then he ends with this incredible statement. Whoops, where did it go? I'm sorry. Oh, here it is. Jesus Christ may well be called meek in the sense of being selfless and humble and utterly devoted to what he considered right, whatever the personal cost, but mild, never. You see, if I preach in reliance of what a per person perceives I can do, I need to become a narcissist to be bold. That'd be pretty ugly. I lose God's power. If I preach in reliance of what I perceive people to think of me, I become a populist or an academic or a literalist or a machinist or a farmer. My sermons begin to impress with the worldly knowledge and salutations and justifications for what I'm saying rather than the power of God's word itself. I lose God's power. You hear what I'm saying in metaphorical manner? Our lives are preaching something. If I'm a narcissist kind of, of, of confidence, I lose God's power. If I'm a populist kind of, 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 of you know, uh, server, I'm going to lose God's power. If I preach in reliance of what I perceive that God can do, however, I need to become humbler to be so bold. And again, God's power now is manifest. In humility, I don't trust myself, but I do trust in God. Greater is he that lives within me than he who lives in the world. Identity. Power. And then morality. Morality starts with the morality of the law of God is perfectly manifest in Christ, not of this world. A moral compass that transcends. I want to close this way. We are going to come to a table to remember it, unfortunately only to remember it, as we are all in exile from it. But as we remember it, remember that there is no way you will endure this sermon and not come to this table and realize that I am now free, I'm even empowered to be honest because I'm not afraid to be honest. I want to encourage every man, woman, and child watching and participating in the sermon to be honest as we come to the table today. Ask God to reveal your heart. Perhaps you're a Christian and you really need to reevaluate how you've been serving God and the attitudes that you've had with it. 
Perhaps you're not a Christian. And now you see what hypocrisy is and isn't. Hypocrisy, you see, is not someone who sins. Hypocrisy is someone who sins and acts like they don't. And as we've seen, sin goes much deeper than outward behavior. There is true, true truth. Sin goes even into the heart. That's why the gospel that we represent here is so good news. Where's the condemnation? There is none for those who now, the most unhypocritical thing you could possibly do is to take your confidence and your trust and your faith off of yourself and off of your peers and to put it on the one that is worthy of it, God himself who sent his son, Jesus Christ, to pay for our sins. Put your heart on him. Trust him. And there is therefore no condemnation for you. For that is the least hypocritical thing you can do is to acknowledge that you're broken and sinful and you need a savior. And you now ask the Savior to restore you and to rebuild you in a manner in which you can more and more live not a pretender righteousness, but a righteousness by grace through faith alone. Amen.